As you're taking your seats, let me encourage you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians. This is a, a really sweet morning. This is our fall a ministry year kickoff every year. We like to kind of rally back together. Everybody's back, hopefully, from summer. Uh, hearts are ready to go, ready to engage in another year of ministry in the life of the church, and that's been our prayer for all of us as a church family. And so we are beginning our year by studying um, through the book of Ephesians. In fact, it's going to take us the entire year to get through this amazing book and I, I want to encourage you, we, we also have a ministry year theme we like to just put before us and to keep constantly before our eyes and kind of in commemoration, I mentioned this last week, of the 500th year of the um, Reformation, our ministry year theme is Sola de Gloria. And, and that translated from Latin into English is glory to God alone. This is really the heartbeat of everything we do in the life of the church. This is part of our mission statement. This is part of who we are. This is how we long to live our lives for the glory of God alone. You'll notice that there is a, a sticker on your chair. Um, every year we kind of give you a sticker, just something for you to hang on to. I put all these in the back of my Bible. I can go through every ministry year and just see what God has done, where we have been, and I'd encourage you to take this, put it somewhere where it will constantly be before your eyes and be a blessing to you. You will see, I trust, by the end of this sermon this morning that the glory of God is preeminent in the book of Ephesians, in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. The letter to the Ephesians is a marvelously concise, yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications for us. Nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenged to a consistency of Christian life. It was John Calvin, the great reformer's favorite letter in all of the New Testament. It has been called the crown and climax of Paul's theology. It has been said that it is the sublimest communication ever made to men. The consummate and most comprehensive statement which even the New Testament contains of the meaning of the Christian religion. It is certainly the final statement of Paul's theology. Samuel Taylor Coleridge called it the divinest composition of man. John A. McKay, past president of Princeton Theological Seminary, said this, never was the reality of revelation more obvious and the reflective powers of the Apostle Paul's mind more transfigured than in the great book which is known by the title, The Epistle to the Ephesians. It has been said that it is the greatest the maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all Paul's works. For here is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. Ephesians explains what the church's role is in God's great plan for the universe, for cosmic reconciliation, how God plans to set everything right. Ephesians reveals the position and job description of the church of Jesus Christ in affecting God's new order on the world. It answers the question, what does it mean to be in Christ and what does this demand from us or of us? Paul is writing to ground and to shape and to challenge Christians in their faith. In other words, Paul's primary goal in writing this letter is identity formation. 
There is perhaps no more relevant book in the New Testament for we live in a world that is seeking to form and to forge its identity in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. We are constantly striving to try and forge an identity that is uh, shaking and shifting uh, in accordance with the fads of the culture and the society around us, in accordance with our own personal emotions or the emotions of others. The result is a generally shifting and unstable identity. We strive to find our identity in the decisions we make, past decisions that we believe define us, whether good or bad, We define ourselves by decisions we currently or long to make, a career choice, an occupation that we believe holds credibility, a reputation that is defined by, again, those around us and the culture we live in. We submit ourselves to the whims of everything around us. Our identity is typically forged by the choices, as I said, that we have made or maybe the choices that others have made for us that affect us. We live in the shame of our past choices or we live in the pride of our present choices and we are constantly fighting to forge an identity that is always shifting, but what we need is beyond what we can forge for ourselves. That's what the book of Ephesians teaches us. The book of Ephesians teaches us that what we need is an unshakable identity. An identity that comes from outside of us, an identity that we do not determine or establish for ourselves, but is established and forged by Almighty God, the one who created us, the one who designed us, the one who knows us, and the one who gives us purpose. That is what we are after in this first chapter of Ephesians and throughout the entirety of this book. We are looking to forge an unshakable identity. Paul begins as he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. Beginning in verse 1, let's read through verse six together. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul here teaches us how to forge an unshakable identity, and if we are going to do that together, and I trust that's your desire this morning, here's what it requires. It requires first that you know who you are. It requires that you know who you are. That is the starting place for establishing an identity, and so many people in our day and age truly have no idea who they are, and so they start from the wrong place in trying to then go after the wrong kind of identity. Paul here is very aware of who he is, and as we look at him, as he really quickly defines himself, we can be reminded of who we truly are. And as he looks at the people he's writing to, and he defines them in certain categories, we too can grab a hold of what he says about them and realize that it is true of us. Paul, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
He's an apostle, and we know, Paul, if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that this is the great apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. We've just studied through 2 Timothy, and we saw that he wrote that letter to Timothy, by the way, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. We've seen the life of Paul as we studied through the book of Acts last year. There is a sense that whenever Paul says the word apostle, his heart must kind of do a, a double take to almost kind of look back and make sure that he's, he's referring to the, the right person, so to speak. Paul, the, the apostle, really? Me, the apostle? This is the same title that Jesus gave the 12 disciples and whose title designates somebody who is specially chosen by God for a special mission as a messenger of God, specifically as a messenger of the gospel of God's grace. You see, that is not a title that Paul chose for himself. It is a title that Paul wants to make very clear was chosen for him. It was grace gifted to him. It wasn't something that he could establish for himself. It wasn't something that he could simply apply to himself. It was something that God must have applied to him. He says, it was not by my will that I became an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice he says there, but by the will of God. That is, by the way, not just a statement of God's sovereignty, it is a statement of God's grace. And when Paul says, by the will of God, instantly you have to think Paul is going backwards in his mind to think about who he was before Jesus Christ. And I think Paul would classify himself like this, I am an undeserving sinner. I'm an undeserving sinner, and I think we too can recognize the same truth for us. Paul says, I am what I am, not because of my own doing, but by the will of God. He has made me who I am. He has called me to himself. Remember Paul's former life? Paul's autobiography is laid out for us in scripture. He goes back time and time again throughout the New Testament in his writings and he reminds us, he gives us little snippets of who he is. But if that's not enough, God, by the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit, has Luke write in Acts chapter nine an entire account of Paul's wicked rebellion against God. He was not always Paul, remember? He was Saul. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a brilliant rabbi, and he stood by at the stoning and martyrdom of Stephen. He was on his way to persecute Christians. He was on his way to imprison them and hopefully see them killed, thinking, listen, well-intentioned, thinking that he was doing the will of God, and then God stops him in his tracks. God, listen, listen to this, God stopped him in his tracks. God arrested him on the road to Damascus. God blinded him with his glory. God spoke to him about not only who he was, but who he was. And in that moment, Paul, with scales on his eyes, realizes what he perhaps had failed to see throughout his entire life, that he was truly at the very core of his being, an undeserving sinner, and yet here God meets him by his grace. His personal conversion story is a story of being on the wrong path, of rebelling against God, and every single one of us, if we're Christians or not, can identify with what Paul says. So his initial statement reminds us, listen, not only of who he was, but hopefully of who we are. 
I wonder this morning if you see yourself first and foremost as the Bible sees you as an undeserving sinner. That in other words, that there's nothing you can do to deserve God's kindness and grace towards you. That it can't be merited, it can't be earned, you can't give enough, you can't attend church enough, you can't be pious enough. Your reputation will never be enough because at the very core of your being, you are flawed and broken because of the effects of sin in this world. All of humanity suffers from the same problem of sin and are in need of the same solution of God's grace. So just make that statement to yourself even this morning as we begin that I'm an undeserving sinner. This is, this is ground zero of knowing who you are and determining how you can forge the proper identity. We are who we are by the grace of God, amen? And nothing more. But secondly, notice this. He says, I, I, I'm an unworthy saint. Paul now turns to the recipients of this letter, his audience, and notice what he says in the second half of verse one. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He he looks to the the, the believers, the the faithful, and by the way, the saints and the believers, this is meant to be the same thing. They're synonymous in Paul's mind. The, The saints are genuine believers, and those are those who are faithful. But here, Paul reminds us that he is writing to a specific group of believers. Saints, by the way, means holy ones, those who are set apart, those who are consecrated. And the word was descriptive of what had ultimately happened in their hearts. They were saints, though living, listen, under the shadow of pagan temples amidst the moral decay of Asia Minor, that's where Ephesus is, it's modern day Turkey, In Ephesus, we know, was a really pagan culture and society. It was corrupt. It was filled with all kinds of immorality, and it was decaying like even the culture around us. And yet Paul looks at them in the midst of their cultural circumstances and says, you guys are saints. You're set apart. You're holy ones. He looks to the church, and he says, you are a people who are called saints, They were saints while going about their lives, whether they were shopkeeping, whether they were sailing, whether they were building, whether they were raising children. Paul also adds again here that they are faithful. They were actively believing and trusting God. That really helps us understand how they became saints. Not because of anything they had done, but because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wants to make it clear right here. And this is going to be the first of the in Christ that we see throughout this passage. This passage is loaded with this phrase, this this little phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him, in the beloved. I mean, we're going to see this repeatedly. Paul wants to elevate Christ as the center of all things. And there's only those who are in Christ who can be considered saints. I just want to make this crystal clear because I think there are lots of people based on different religions and different faiths that believe that somehow sainthood can be achieved by something we can do. You know, we can earn sainthood by our good behavior or our good conduct. In the scriptures, we see saints is used for those who God has provided the righteousness for. As John Calvin said, no man is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. There is no second class citizens in God's 
church and in God's economy. This was all because, listen, they were in Christ Jesus. They were personally and intimately in him. And as appendages are a part of the body or branches are a part of a tree, this title implies that they had received grace and that they were at peace with God. Verse two, Paul's customary greetings, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has made it clear what he longs for for these believers. Listen, we are those to whom God has given his grace and his peace. You can only forge an unshakable identity when you know who you are. An undeserving sinner who has been made an unworthy saint. You have not been found worthy because of your own deeds. You have been found worthy simply because of the merit and kindness of God. There is a shift in status because of a shift in relationship. And if you are in Christ, then you have experienced in some measure the grace and peace from God. But you need to notice this. It is Paul's desire that all those who are in Christ Jesus not only understand and experience these here and now, but in ever-increasing measures. Grace and peace to you continually be plumbing the depths of God's grace and peace that is given to you. That happens when you first and foremost truly know who you are. And secondly, it can happen when you know whose you are when you know whose you are. Forging an unshakable identity not only requires that you know who you are, but listen, it is more importantly found when you know whose you are. So much of our identity struggles come from searching for meaning, for joy, for satisfaction in all the wrong places. We feel that we need to build a reputation, we feel that we need to accumulate the latest things, we feel that we have to have a career that is honored amongst all, we feel that the bank account must have enough zeros in it. It's a constant search for more, for different, for better. But what if you already had everything you need and so much more, you simply had to access it? What if you had been given everything you need because of whose you are? Paul now launches into a, a diatribe about all that is ours because of who we are, and it comes in the form of, of a, a declaration of praise. In fact, this is fascinating. When you look at verse three, all the way through verse 14 in your Bibles, Paul, this is one of the longest run-on sentences in all of the Bible. In the original languages, there is no punctuation, none. And, and that's important because you know what Paul is doing? Paul, it's like Paul's taking this giant breath and he's thinking about all that God has done and all that God has given him and he pulls in all of this air into his lungs and he's just like, I can't stop, no punctuation necessary. I just gotta get it out. And he just runs through all of the magnificent realities of what it means to be someone who is in Christ Jesus and his heart erupts in this magnificent praise and adoration of God. And listen, when we see whose we are and what that means for us and for our identity, we ought not to stop but praise God for everything he has done. And that's where he starts right here. It is an incredible outburst of praise for all of the bountiful riches afforded to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so here's how you can know who, what your identity looks like if you're in Christ Jesus. Whose you are means this, I am unfathomably rich. I am so unfathomably rich because of whose I am. Paul burst out the blocks in verse three. 
And listen, just listen to the heart. You have to read emotion into this, okay? Paul is breaking out into praise. And so he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Bless the one who has blessed us with everything. There is such gratitude and thanksgiving that is welling up within Paul as he recalls God's marvelous salvation plan in Jesus Christ. He can't help but think of salvation and think of how God had saved him, an an undeserving sinner, and made him an unworthy saint. It causes his heart to be filled with gratitude. Listen, listen, church, church. Does your heart fill with gratitude and thanksgiving when you think about who you were and who God has made you to be in him? This is so important for the way we live our lives. This is why Paul starts here. The Christian life begins and ends, listen, with understanding what God has done for us. At the same time, listen, this whole paragraph, which is a declaration of praise, is intended to instruct the hearers and the readers. It's intended to teach us and to cause us to turn and to respond and to magnify God and to magnify his glory. To turn and look at the one, listen, who is worthy of our adoration and worthy of our praise and to give it to him bountifully as he has given to us so bountifully. Paul, listen, this is so crucial to understand. Paul does not express a wish, but a fact. Blessed is God. This is a reminder, listen to, that all of our theology must lead to doxology. Let me say that again. All of our theology must lead to doxology. Doxology is the fancy word which means to worship and praise and glory. Everything we learn about God, listen, has an ultimate end, right? The end is not learning itself. That's a means to the greatest end of all, which is to be worshipers of the one true and living God. Amen? That is why we sing. This is why we gather and lift our voices, right? This is why we hear the word. It is all intended to bring us to this place of a greater love and adoration and affection for Jesus Christ where our heart erupts in praise because he is worthy. So why is he so worthy of our praise? Here's what Paul tells us. Because God has blessed us with every conceivable blessing. There is nothing that he hasn't blessed us with. Every spiritual blessing, a a phrase by the way, which may well mean every blessing of the Holy Spirit. This is the way it's been taken uh, throughout the years, that here we see a masterful picture, listen, of the work of the Trinity in our salvation, in our ongoing Christian life. Here he talks about God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ giving us every spiritual blessing, and if we take that, which I believe it is, to mean the Holy Spirit, blessings to the Spirit of God. And we see that God's plan of salvation, which is accomplished in and through Jesus Christ, and is applied to us through the Spirit of God. He says that all these spiritual blessings come to us in the heavenly places. That is a fascinating term that Paul is going to use even throughout this letter, and again, this points to the spiritual nature of these blessings. 
It doesn't, by the way, exclude the physical blessings that God gives us, but, but it, is in, it, is, it is intent, excuse me, on heightening our understanding of how rich we are. You see, if we stop short and we, we say, well, God has only blessed us, he's only uh, cared for us in, in the physical sense, we miss entirely the greatness of what Paul is aiming at. Yes, the physical blessings are wonderful, but oh, they pale in comparison to the spiritual, supernatural blessings that God has afforded to us. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, said this, these blessings are spiritual not merely because they pertain to the soul, but because they are derived from the Holy Spirit whose presence and influence are the great blessing purchased by Christ. You see, you see, listen, if you can just grasp this, the greatest spiritual blessing God has given you is himself through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. He's drawn near to you, and he lives within you. Listen, the God who created the universe lives in here, inside of us, allowing us to enjoy intimate, deep, ongoing fellowship with him. And the riches that are afforded to us with the presence of God's spirit are so remarkable. John D. Rockefeller was... uh, I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't say he was quite a stingy man. He certainly was not ostentatious. He didn't flaunt his wealth and his kids growing up in his home. I think in an effort to teach them um, the value of a dollar, his kids grew up never knowing that their dad was the richest man in the world. In fact, they grew up not even knowing that their dad had money. And it was a shock to them to find out one day uh, that they could actually afford essentially anything they put their eyes upon. It was staggering for them to realize how wealthy their father was and how wealthy they were because of their father. And I just think that Christians in many ways are like that child who has no clue how wealthy their father is and the abundance of riches that are available to them because of who he is. And I think we need to learn as Christians to begin to live in light of the abundant riches that God has given us. Loved ones, every blessing of the Holy Spirit has been given us by the Father if we are in the Son. He is not a stingy or cheap Father. No blessing has been withheld from us. Our resources in God are not simply promised. They are actually and truly possessed. Too many times, Christians, I hear this all the time, Christians run around asking God for what he has already given them. We want to cling to the, to the promise, but we want to ask, God, give me the spirit. God, give me your presence. Do you realize those are things that you don't actually have to pray for? There may be things in your life that are hindering you experiencing the presence of God like sin. You're not able to enjoy the union you have with Christ because you are lacking in your communion with Christ. But God has already given us everything we need. We need not ask for any more in one sense. We have been given the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. God cannot give us more than he has already given us in his son. And there is nothing more that you and I can receive from God, especially in that spiritual sense. He has given it to us bountifully and fully. Our need, therefore, is not to receive something more, but to do something more with what we have been given. As we continue to grow, it is our joy, listen, on this journey, and it will be this this year as a church, I believe, to explore the riches of our inheritance that are in him, anticipating that God may grant us many deeper and richer experiences of himself along the way. 
Paul would write in Colossians 2.10, he says this, and you have been filled in him. Christian, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, the one who reigns supreme. The key for understanding this letter is to recognize that believers have a new identity in Christ, a new self-understanding based on a new reality that permeates every aspect of life and transforms us from the inside out, and it starts here for us, I am unfathomably rich. Secondly, note this, when you know whose you are, you can make this statement of identity, I am undeniably chosen. I am undeniably chosen. Paul reaches back into eternity past here to describe the glorious roots of our identity. In verse four, look at God's word with me. He says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is is a truly staggering reality that I I cannot get my, my mind around, but it seems to still fill my heart with wonder and awe. While we are inclined, listen, to forge a fluctuating and unstable identity based on our personal choices. Listen, Paul reminds us that our unshakable identity is truly forged by understanding his choice of us. You get that? It's less, listen, we, we, we strive to form and forge our identity based on our choices, what I've did not done with my life, what's happened to me, or, or the things that I've done that contribute to the consequences of my life, and all of our choices we think determine who we are, and God says, no, 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 it's my choice of you that determines who you are. You're not defined by your past, you're not defined by your future, you're defined by me. That is so reassuring. It lifts the weight off of our shoulders. It just falls upon us to truly understand what this means. Paul looks at the theme here of divine election, and he highlights some truly mind-boggling revelations for us. Before the world was created, he says, in eternity past, the perfect eternal God formed a purpose that involved Jesus and us. Think about that. Before all of this existed, God was with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he came up with this brilliant idea to take us and Jesus and to do something spectacular. God put us and Christ together in his mind. He determined to make us his own children through the redeeming work of Christ that had not yet even taken place. Now let's just confess right out the gates that everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. And if you say you don't, then you don't understand it. It is incredibly difficult to process the doctrine of election. That's why, I mean, for millennia now, there have been debates over this issue. It has been a source of great contention in the life of the church, and my goal this morning is not to make it a source of contention, but a source of great joy. God's electing and predestining, which is a word that is gonna be used in verse five, work, is very clear in scripture, but it is often interpreted in different ways. So let's just confess right out of the gates that it's a difficult doctrine to understand, election and predestination, but let's just acknowledge this very quickly, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. John Stott says it like this, he says, the doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not a human speculation. 
It was not dreamed up by Martin Luther or John Calvin, which is fitting in terms of the Reformation, or by St. Augustine, or I love this, by the Apostle Paul for that matter. It is not to be set aside as the imagination of some overactive religious minds, but rather humbly accepted as revelation, however mysterious it may be from God. I just think that is such a brilliant and helpful statement for us. But let me give you a framework to help you with this. Because the Bible clearly teaches two truths, this is incredibly difficult for our minds to grasp. See, the Bible teaches two two truths that are often seen in contradiction with one another, that God is sovereign and that we are responsible, right? And then everybody in the world goes, how exactly does that work? The danger is when you believe one of these things to the exclusion of the other, right? When you start believing in the sovereignty of God so much so that it leads you to a place where you say, you know what, God is sovereign and in control, so that means he's gonna do whatever he wants anyways. I can kind of just let go and do nothing because God's gonna accomplish what he wants to do anyways. I don't need to evangelize. I mean, I don't even really need to live the Christian life that faithfully. God's gonna do what he's gonna do. It's kind of fatalism. And that, just hear this, that is so clearly not in the Bible, okay? The, the other danger is when we move so far to this end of the spectrum and we say, I am responsible, it all depends upon me to the exclusion of God's sovereignty. I mean, and, and some people move to the place where they actually end up believing that God is not sovereign at all. It's a doctrine called open theism where God is actually just a quick responder. You know, he's good at anticipating things a lot quicker than you and me, but he's really, he really doesn't know the future. He doesn't know anything that's going on. He hasn't planned anything, and that is incredibly dangerous, and you can get to a place there where you believe it all depends upon me and nothing depends ultimately on God. Also not in the Bible. There are some people who wrestle with this tension, I trust you are wrestling maybe even your mind this morning, that there is tension and one that our brains often do not like. J.I. Packer calls this an antinomy or, or an apparent contradiction. In other words, it's not a contradiction, but it simply appears to be a contradiction. They, they don't appear to go together, but they actually do. It appears to be contradictory, but in actuality, in understanding it more, it takes us to a place of deeper depths of understanding of God's majestic truth. We have to learn to embrace this tension and to see these twin truths not in contradiction to each other, but complementing each other. God is sovereign, in other words, listen, not despite our choices, but through our choices. So you say, well, did did God choose me or did I choose God? Yes. (laughs) You got any more? No, right? But I I think that we, we get this tension, you know, most of us, you know, we, we sing the song, I decided to follow Jesus, and, and you know, the truth is we can sing that with conviction because we did decide to follow Jesus. We did declare that we were going to be followers of Christ. We did repent of our sins. We did, in one sense, choose Christ. But really, it's a matter, I believe, of priority. What came first? And this is hard for us to grasp. I think Paul kind of captures a bit of this tension in, in, in uh, Galatians 4, 9 when he says this. He says, now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. And it shows this kind of tension there as it, trying to figure out how exactly it's happened and what should take greater priority. Acts 18 talks about those who had come 
who by grace came to believe. You see, to feel this tension, you only have to look, I think, at your own conversion story for a minute. Most of us can honestly look back at our conversion story if, if presupposing this wasn't when you were five. And you can remember, right? Can you not remember the time right now when, when God mercifully saved you? When you, you were agonizing over your sin, you came face to face with the reality that you were a sinner. You came face to face the reality with the reality that you had rebelled against a holy God and that there was no way of you being in his presence because of your sin. And all of a sudden you felt the weight of your sin, the weight of your shame, and the weight of your guilt bringing in that deep sense of conviction. And then you heard the good news of the gospel that God saw you and knew that you couldn't fix yourself and he came to save and rescue you through his son, Jesus Christ. And you saw the cross and you said, uh, I see there that that is God in the flesh hanging for me, paying for my sins, suffering in my place. I believe and I see that he rose from the grave. You see, you, you came to this crisis point in your life where you said, I now will lay down my life and follow Jesus. He is now my Lord and my master. I will follow him all of my days. You remember that? And you think, man, wow, what a, what a great thing I've done in choosing to follow Jesus. And then just a little bit of time goes on, and as you mature as a Christian, you can kind of look back at your life, and then you begin to see, long before you chose Christ, you saw that God was actually pursuing you. You can, you can look at that, you mean the province, the people that God put in your life, the questions that people began to ask you the crisis or the suffering that you had to go through that all of a sudden made you ask deep and meaningful questions you've never asked before. And you look back and as you mature in Christ, you say, wait a second, yeah, I chose Jesus, but he first chose me. Long before I pursued him, he was pursuing me. And doesn't that make your heart just a little bit happy this morning? Like God saw you knowing how dangerous the plight you were in, knowing how devastatingly helpless you were, and he said, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna run after you and you were undeniably chosen by God. This is so transformative when you understand it. And Paul speaks of it so often in the scriptures because it's intended to have an effect on our hearts, an effect on how we live our lives. It is intended by God to produce gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. That's why Paul is continuing to praise God because of this. And can you just see right even from our text that you say, why, why is this so important for us to understand? Because it is to be an incentive towards holiness, not an excuse for sin. His grace and kindness in choosing us is to be an incentive to, to run from sin and to pursue holiness. He says this in verse four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Look at this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now first, he gives us the holiness and the blamelessness because of Jesus Christ, but he chose us in him so that he might sanctify us. We do not strive to be holy so that he will choose us. This is so important for some of us to grasp this morning. We do not strive to be holy so that he will choose us, but because he has chosen us. We do not strive to be holy so that God will accept us. We strive to be holy because God has accepted us. Do you see the difference? That is so massive. 
that moves us in our hearts from a place of duty-bound obedience to a place of delight-bound obedience. You see, when you believe you have to earn God's favor through your own righteousness, your own holiness, and your own perfection of life, listen, that means that everything you do is out of duty to simply be who you think God is calling you to be so that he will finally accept you. But when you see that he has accepted you, not because of anything you have done, but because of everything that he has done, it changes the whole dynamic and the relationship. You live out of that gratitude and that love because he has first loved us. We have loved him. And that moves us to this third thought here that I am unceasingly loved. When you know whose you are, this is what you know about your identity, that you are unceasingly loved They're chosen ones. He says in verse five, and he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. But don't miss those first two words. I left them off intentionally so we can go back there and just camp there for a minute. Listen, in love, in love he predestined us. In love he has chosen us. You say, why did God choose me? Well, because you were gonna be pretty impressive on team Jesus. No, no because he loved you. Chosen ones, predestined in love, an unceasing, unfailing, unending love of God for you. You don't have to live under the burden and pressure of trying to earn God's love. He has given it to you and will never take it from you if you are in Christ Jesus. You understand that? This is the foundation of our identity. We are secure in the present because of our salvation that was ordained in the past. And this is a stimulus for humility, not a grounds for boasting. Let me just say it again. There is no merit involved at all in his choice of us. It is all of grace, amen? The gospel is not good news about what we have done for God, but what he has done for us. God's not lost, right? We are. God's not up in heaven singing amazing grace because he was lost and we found him. It's the other way. We needed God to seek us out because there was no other way. We simply couldn't do it. And some of you have been trying to do it on your own for way too long. Some of you have been trying to earn your salvation with God instead of coming through faith in Christ Jesus. And today is the day when God would say, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Let me take that burden off of you. My yoke is easy. Come to me, lay that, lay that pursuit down. No longer do you need to feel the weight, that crushing weight that you were never intended to bear. Instead, you can allow Jesus to bear the responsibility of being perfectly righteous on your behalf. But some of you live as if, as a Christian, you have to keep earning God's love. And can I say that is an equally, in one sense, crushing burden and weight to live under? It is relentless and it does not lead to greater joy and love for Christ. It leads us to a place of great anger and frustration with Christ. Because we can't do it. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. God doesn't love us because of who we are, but because of who he is. Not because we are lovely, but because he is loving. 
May that be our boast as a church. This is not a place filled with lovely people, no matter what you may think of yourself. This is a place filled with people who are unlovely because of our sin, but are here because we have a loving God. I will boast in that truth. He explains being chosen and predestined here by using this metaphor of adoption, reinforcing this picture of love that he has for us. It is such a beautiful picture, by the way, of the gospel of salvation. You know, salvation really is, is like a multifaceted jewel or gem. It, it can be turned a lot of different ways. A lot of different metaphors used to describe God's saving work in our lives, but one of, I think, the most often overlooked and perhaps one of the most precious metaphors for the gospel is this picture of adoption. It highlights not only, I love it so much, not only what we have been saved from, but what we have been saved for or to. You see, we have been saved by God for the family of God, with God as our father, and one another's brothers and sisters. This idea of being adopted reminds us already of what Paul has said, that God is our father. He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our father as well. And it speaks of a deep intimacy and a deep and abiding love, a father's love for his children. Now for some of you, it's hard for you to think of God as father because you associate that with perhaps a, an earthly negative example. Maybe you didn't have a father or maybe you had a father who used his authority to hurt you instead of help you, to control you instead of serve you, to demean you instead of love you. You never felt cherished, you never felt protective, you never felt the guidance of your father, and so when you hear the word father, what you think of is very foreign. In fact, it may actually turn your stomach a little bit. You may be thinking here this morning, I don't want God as a father. But you see, God sets forth the paradigm of what all earthly fathers are supposed to be and fail at miserably. We are not to view God as Father simply by our own experiences, but by who He says He is in Scripture, by what He means by being Father. I love Psalm 68. The psalmist says this, that the, God is a Father to the fatherless. It is a picture of love and embracing, a picture of security, of warmth, and of intimacy, a picture of care and guidance. It's a picture that, of, of God's loving heart that goes after those, listen, who are without a father, Whatever you may think, God shows us and fulfills the picture of a perfect loving father who serves, who protects, who guides, who pours his life out for his children, who commits himself fully to his children, who uses his authority and power not to hurt or to wound, but to help and to heal. You say, why does this matter? What does this do for me personally as I live my life? When I understand these deep realities of God as father, first I just want you to see this, that that means that God gives us access to him. Through Christ, God has given us access to him. I love that he reminds us that our adoption is through Jesus Christ and that it is according to the purpose of his will. God had always designed through Jesus Christ, listen, to bring you into his family so that you could have direct access to him. Isn't that awesome news? You can go to your father at any moment in time. Now, I think this is important because we all limit our access in various ways, right? 
We all have a limited access. Like if somebody comes up to you on the street and looks like they're a little bit shady and says, hey, uh, would you mind giving me your address? I'd love to stop by this afternoon and hang out. I don't think you're gonna be quick to give him access, right, to your home. When you, you know, we, we all, listen, when somebody's asking online, you know, we're filling a form out for an email, we all got a junk email we use, right? Like, you're not sending this to my actual email box, you're going to the fake email box that I never check. We limit access in various ways, but when it comes to God as Father, listen, here's the reality for those of us who have been adopted into his family. There is never, ever a moment in time where your access to God is limited. He never has a moment of time where he says, go away, I'm too busy for you. Don't bring that to me, that's not worth my time. There's never a moment in time where God doesn't fling the doors open and say, come on in, come grab a hold of my throne of grace. I have given you full and complete access. It's unlimited. Not only that, but this, secondly, truly forges our identity. Did you notice there that you have become a part of a family, which means this, you are a child, God considers you a child, and I just want you to remember who you're a child of this morning, you're a child of the King of Kings. You know, I I love when when my kids take great pride, I hope this isn't sinful, maybe I better start repenting in the spot. You know, they take pride, you know, in in who their, their parents are. When my kids say things like, that's my dad. You know, when, when they think of you and, and they, they see you, they respect you, they love you, and they know that you have loved them, and they can look at you and go, that's my dad, that's my dad. You know, right now my kids are still young, and maybe they'll be whispering to her friends when they see me, that's my dad. I know that's not going to last that long, but let me glory in it while it's still happening, okay? They love that I'm their dad most of the time. But you know, we are children of the king, We have a father who is always kind, who is always perfect, who is always caring, who is always looking out for our good, who is determined to make us into the people that he calls us to be, and there's never a moment in time where we can't be ashamed and look at God and say, that's my dad. That's my dad. And I'm proud to be a child of the king. He says here that we are adopted I I just think that you just consider that word for a minute. I've come to understand, even this week, that the word adopted is better used as a verb than an adjective. In other words, you're not an adopted child. You're a child who was adopted. And there is a world of difference between those two things because one speaks of inequality, the other speaks of equality. Where we are defined by our adoptedness We are seen sometimes as those who maybe don't belong, but when we are defined instead by a child who has been adopted, it points to the equality of status that God grants to all of his children. You know, you have the same status and rights of any child in God's family. There there are no, no differing degrees of status in God's family. You are all equally important, and that is really fleshed out right here. Listen to what he says. He says, as for, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, you just consider that word right now. Sons. All of us, listen, are considered by God as his adopted children as sons. That is not misogynistic, okay? Some of you like women are like, I want to be a daughter of the king. You can have that too. But for a minute, you need to consider what it means to be a son of the king. 
It means to be given the same status as a son, and in the ancient world, listen, the firstborn son had the highest status, and he had the highest, he was the heir to the the kingdom of the father, so to speak. He had the greatest reward coming his way, the greatest inheritance coming his way, and so when God looks at all of us, men and women together, and says, you, listen, are sons of God, you need to take that so incredibly seriously, because God is saying, I have given you the status of the highest of the high, and in fact, you have been given, listen, the status of Jesus Christ himself. Because he is the firstborn son. He is the one with the greatest inheritance. And it comes full circle back to that. Don't you see? Everything that Christ is given by God has been given to you as adopted sons through Christ Jesus. Everything God wants to shower upon Jesus Christ is now showered upon you and me as well. Everything, everything, none of it is held back. All of it is ours. Christ the beloved is now the lens through which God looks at us. We don't get the leftover love of God, isn't that awesome? We receive the same love with which the Father loves the Son, that is identity shaping, that is life changing, and we need to see, to recognize, and to rejoice in this. God loves you like he loves Jesus. That is astounding. And the only reason he can do that is because he loves you through Christ. He has given you everything that is afforded to Christ. Lastly, and very quickly, unshakable identity is forged when you know why you are. When you know who you are, when you know whose you are, and lastly, when you know why you are. You can kind of grab the end of verse five and press it into verse six as well. All of this is according to the purpose of his will, listen to this, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in, beloved. He's in all of this according to the purpose of his will. And here's really where it all culminates. Who you are, whose you are, and Finally, your identity is truly shaped when you know why you are. To what ultimate ends were you created? To what ultimate ends were you chosen? Why did God predestine you? Why did God ultimately sanctify you? Why does God love you? Here it is, so that you might forge your unshakable identity in declaring this, that I am an unashamed worshiper. I'm an unashamed worshiper. This is who God has made me to be. God's ultimate purpose in selecting and predestining a people for himself is that it would lead to his own glory. This will become the chorus of this run-on sentence. In fact, in verse six, he says this, to the praise of his glorious grace. Notice this in verse 12, the very end. Be to the praise of his glory. And look at the very end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. We exist for God's glory. To know him, to love him, to enjoy him, and ultimately and eternally to worship him. To lay our lives and one day our crowns down before the glory of God alone. 
This is why we have chosen this theme for the year. Everything we are as individuals, everything we are as the church of Jesus Christ, every part of it is all for the praise of his glorious grace. Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. This is our unshakable identity. I am an unashamed worshiper because I know who I am, I know whose I am, and I know why I am. You are made to worship, not anyone or anything, but only the one who is worthy. Give glory to God alone. While this is our theme for the year, really, this is our theme for all of eternity. In Revelation 5, John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Give yourself to him out of gratitude for his glorious love and grace. Give your praise to him now and for all eternity. Father, we pray. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be so overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving even now, Father. You have been so merciful and so gracious to us, Lord. And while we are undeserving and while we could not merit your favor, Lord, you graciously have lavished your grace and mercy upon us. Father, and you have done it all so that we might know you, that we might love you, and that we might worship you. That our lives, Lord, might be a living sacrifice, lived, Lord, not for our own glory, not for our, uh, the purpose of our will, but for the purpose and praise of your glorious grace, to the praise of your glory, Lord. May it be true for us individually, may it be true for us corporately as a church family. Lord, as we look at this upcoming year of ministry together, God, I pray that you would reorient or orient our hearts, Father, to do so, all things, Lord, to the glory of God alone. Receive our praise now, for we, O oh Lord, are unashamed worshipers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.